0: If you're committed to building healthy habits, it's time to let Noom put psychology to work. Making a big change to your lifestyle is hard, especially if you rely on sheer willpower alone. Noom's award-winning program can help you form sustainable eating and exercise habits that last. With Noom, no food group is off limits, and there's no complicated calorie counting either. Instead, Noom's cognitive behavioral approach helps you better understand and manage your relationship with food, one meal at a time. Whether your goal is to feel more energized, boost your mood, or improve your stress levels, Noom gives you the tools to make it happen. Best of all, it takes just 10 minutes a day, and because Noom is tailored to your goals and based on leading evidence-based psychology and nutrition science, you know you're always getting the expert guidance and support you need to make lasting progress. Start building healthy habits today. Sign up for your trial at noom.com/habit. That's n o o m.com/habit. Live by Live has all of your favorite music, and you can listen for free. Whether you hit play on one of our hundreds of curated music stations or create your own custom artist radio station, you'll find the music you love on Live by Live. Visit LiveXLive.com or search LiveXLive in the App Store or Google Play and listen for free now.
1: Hello, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. I'm Andrew Brandt, music underscored by one Sam Brandt. We're presented as always by Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts, the exclusive partner of Podcast One Sportsnet, of which this podcast is part of. Bet Online. We did part one of David Falk last week. I hope you heard it. I encourage you to listen if you haven't. David Falk, thirty-six years knowing and representing and being a confidant of one Michael Jordan. I thought during these presentations of the last dance on ESPN going into Michael Jordan from all aspects, I go to the source, someone who knows him as well as anyone and certainly knows his business as well as anyone out there. In part one with David, as you heard, hopefully we went into the recruiting of Michael Jordan. We went into his going into Nike and the whole story of the experience with Nike in terms of forcing him to get on the plane. That was his mother, not David Falk. And going out to Nike and meeting with this Runyon-esque character named Rob Strasser, who was the Nike point person on this, and then coming up with Eric Jordan together and them talking about the fact that the shoe was banned and Strasser was worried and thought that, thought that was great and the marketing pitch, he could work around that. All of the early years with not only Michael Jordan, but we just talked about Patrick Ewing as well and other clients in the early days of us representing players. It's a trip down memory lane for me. I hope you all enjoyed it. Rollicking interview with David Falk. So good that it went for hours. And now we present to you part two. Before we get to that, a quick rant about this last dance. I just don't get the people out there that want to use this as some kind of comparison between LeBron James and Michael Jordan. I don't even know where that's coming from. I think we just are now in this tribal society where you got to pick a side. Well, I say no. You don't have to pick a side. You don't have to pick one or the other. You can appreciate the greatness of each, which I certainly do. Watching these Jordan highlights makes me appreciate him more than I did before. And every time I watch LeBron James, I have the same feeling, like we are lucky to have this unique singular talent around us. Felt that with Kobe. Felt that with uh, other superstars as well. We're really lucky and fortunate to live in this time. And uh, that's my feeling about Jordan and LeBron. And I just think this gotcha mentality, I don't know where it comes from. I just think it's low value. It's it's junk food. You know, again, I, just one little example this week. Deshaun Watson, there's something came out that he talked to the Bears before the draft a couple of years ago, and he said he never talked to the Bears. And then there's video or recording of him saying he did talk to the Bears. I'm like, who cares? Like, forget it. Okay, we don't need a gotcha on Deshaun Watson. Whether he talked to the Bears, who didn't take him, or not. I don't know who's trying to make who look bad with that, but whatever. (laughs) Anyway, back to David. Part two, as we are now, if you're watching live, past uh, episode number eight, awaiting for nine and ten of the ten-part series, The Last Dance about Michael Jordan. This week, we get into a lot of things with David. It's the whole Republicans Buy Shoes 2 line, whether it was set or not about Michael's lack of endorsement for Harvey Gantt in the race against Jesse Helms in North Carolina politics. We talk about Michael's charitable efforts. We talk about the gambling. We hit it head on in an honest conversation with David Falk, who knows all about this, Uh, what gambling and how he was involved with Slim Buller. Uh, Talk about him being hard on the teammates, and that included Scottie Pippen and not supporting him on the contract side. And David goes into all sides of Michael Jordan that even we don't see on the documentary that he can really talk about. In addition to a lot of discussion about Jerry Krause, the general manager of the Bulls, who uh, had so many issues with all the players, not just Michael, and of course issues with David. And I sort of pressed David on why Jerry was allowed to break up the team. And Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, who David talks about being more invested in his baseball team than the basketball team, uh, allowed him to do that. All of this ahead. So without further ado, part two of my long-form interview with my former boss and early mentor and longtime agent to Michael Jordan, David Falk. I want to let you address some things that have been in the doc and maybe coming up. First of all, of course, the the Harvey Gantt, North Carolina thing, and Michael's line that somewhat haunts him, I guess, against some of the activists today, which is Republicans buy sneakers, too. And then, of course, the gambling issues and the the relations with some of the shady characters that you see the document kind of maybe setting up what's coming ahead with uh, with his leaving basketball for a year. So I'll let you address that, because, again, this is not all, you know, all uh, all rosy pictures being painted. So let's let's take the political part first. Um,
2: Michael had a philosophy where there's right or wrong he had a philosophy about dealing with political issues and that was he was going to support people privately as opposed to making um public uh, endorsements and his theory on that if i give you like an analogy outside of politics in 1988 and i think you 99 percent sure you're with me you're with me we went out yep. to arizona to meet sean elliott and he had a right. judge, Judge Brown, who was conducting the interviews. We had a great meet- meeting with him. And I called Michael and said, look, Sean went to your basketball camp when he was in high school. Uh, you know, would you just make – if you called him for 30 seconds and tell him that you like us, he will sign with us. And his response was exactly the following. He said, David, let me explain something to you. I can be with any agent in the country I want, anyone. I'm with you because I think you're the best. And if the guys you're trying to sign aren't smart enough to understand that, then you shouldn't sign. I said, you know what, Michael? A lot of the guys we're meeting aren't smart enough to understand that. It's sort of subtle, you know, and we do want to sign them. So would you mind calling Sean Elliott? And he said, no, I, I won't call him. You know, he shouldn't sign with you because, I told him to sign with you. He should sign with you because he thinks you're the best. And in politics, he sort of felt the same way. He said, like, if you think that, you know, Trump is the best candidate and he thinks that Biden's the best candidate, you know, he's not going to tell you to vote for Biden because he thinks you should vote for whoever you think is the best candidate. And and so he never really got involved in politics. Now, had he gotten involved in politics directly, then you come to stage two of this issue, which is who's who has the right to tell Michael how active he should be. If he's like moderately active, there'll be people saying, "Hey, not bad, but turn it up. You're not acting. You're not active enough." It's no one's business how active he he is. It's his decision how much he wants to get involved and what issues he should get involved in you know, and there's just not enough time to get involved in every issue. I mean, early in his career, I'll never forget this. I got a call from a woman from, uh, I think it was muscular dystrophy. And she wanted to know if Michael could make an appearance, you know, a free appearance to support fundraising for muscular dystrophy. I said, I'm sorry, he can't. And she goes, you know, David, you don't understand. This is a very, very important disease. Like, you know, Michael's got to make himself available. I said, look, you know, there were probably five to 600 Charities is multiple sclerosis, heart fund, you know, cystic fibrosis. I went through with 20 of them and each of them feels that there is the most important charity. And if he just made one appearance for each of them, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't be able to play basketball. He'd be spending all his time making appearances for charity. So you have to pick the things that are important to you and, and, and put some weight behind them, which is what he did. He picked causes, he had his own charity. at the Jordan Foundation, um, and interestingly enough, it started out as a public foundation in Chicago. He raised an enormous amount of money, and people criticized him because they thought that he was paying his mother too much to be the executive director, and he shouldn't have had his sister involved as a fundraiser. And he got so frustrated that here he is trying to do good for the you know for the public, and always getting his flack. So he, he shut it down and did it privately. And so you can't please everyone. One of the great things about Michael is he's very confident in who he is, and he's not a follower. He's a leader. And he, he did what he was comfortable doing in politics. Now, mm-hmm. as far as the specific line about repel. I'm not saying he didn't say it. I never heard him say it. I'm not a hundred percent certain that he really did say it that Sam Smith, who put that in one of his books, that that didn't come from the ether zone somewhere. It's a, it's a it's a great line. It's just not the kind of thing that that Michael would say. And I'm not denying that he said it, but I'm not aware that he did say it. Mm-hmm. See, it, it's not it's not the kind of thing he would say. And so, like he understood, and I would tell him that early on. Let don't let of His parents told him the same thing. You've got to make your own decisions about what's important to you. You can't support a charity because someone thinks it's important to them. You know that's why they're doing it. You're, you got to figure out what's important to you, and he has. He's he just came out the other day and donated two million dollars to the uh, NAACP fund and to uh, you know the association for police to try to foster you know a better relationship between law enforcement and and people in the community. He's donated tens of millions of dollars, and he's never asked credit for. It. He's not the kind of person. That says, oh, I just gave all this money. He, he does it quietly and, and impactfully. He's not looking for credit. He's just looking for impact. Michael, Michael, as he admitted on the doc, has a, a, an obsession with competition. He's He is the most competitive human being I've ever met in my life. And he gets that from his parents. Parents are incredibly competitive. And, um, you know, you have to first put it in perspective here's a guy who's making hundreds of millions of dollars. He's now a billionaire. If he goes to the casino and he loses, and he puts $20,000 on the table, that'd be like me putting $20 on the table, or maybe 10, you know. Now, I don't like to lose money, um, but I enjoy playing blackjack. I love playing blackjack with Michael, Uh, you know. We went to, we did it in the Bahamas for 10 years straight. We did it in Vegas. He's sitting there playing blackjack with Barkley and Derek Jeter, Richard Dent, you know all these famous athletes, and and he is the star of the show, and he's got sixty thousand dollars on the table, and I have maybe a hundred, you know, and if I get a pair of eights, I'll say to him, "Hey, you want me to split the eights? And he said, "Well, don't you know how to play?" I said, "I do, but <laughs> what I do with my hundred dollars is going to affect your sixty thousand. Like, w- which way do you want to go?" And he's, he's great. He's just hilarious to play with. And I don't think he remotely has a gambling problem. I think he enjoys gambling. It's just a form of competition. And I don't think he would care, any whether he had a million on the table or a dollar. I think if you play golf with Michael, whether you bet him a dollar for the entire match or you bet him a million dollars for the match, he'd play exactly the same and want to tear your heart out. And so I do not remotely think he has a gambling problem I think he enjoys gambling. And again, uh, you know, and I know because my dad was a compulsive gambler. My dad lost every penny he ever made ever at the racetrack. He always thought Mm. he was going to win the trifecta and not have to work again. And so I'm very sensitive, you know, to gambling. I can't say I love sitting and play blackjack and watching, you know, a guy call for markets at $100,000 a pop. But, you know, I've seen him win a million. I've seen him lose a million. It gives him. He loves it. He loves the competition, and I think he totally has it under control. Now, it's a totally different situation when you are gambling with criminals. You know, and right. and that that was a situation that was teed up by Al Wood, his Carolina teammate, Carolina, you know, alum. Al invited him to play with this guy, Salim Belair, who was being watched by the Feds, you know, for money laundering, and. Al never should have invited him. Al should have screamed the guy better. When you're asking Michael to play golf with someone for four or five hours or eight hours playing 36 holes, you got to damn well make sure that it's not going to be injurious to Michael. And it was. And, you know, he had. A, I made him apologize. We got into a huge argument over the gambling thing. And I said, look, you didn't do anything, you know, horrible. You made a mistake in judgment. Just apologize. And he was fried at me. And But he did apologize. He took my advice, apologized, and 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 it went away. And so you know you you can't be too big to uh, to not admit your mistakes. There are people in our society today. I won't name any names that we watch on TV every day that have never admitted that they've never made a mistake. And there's no credibility in saying you haven't made mistakes. We all make mistakes. Um, And so you know. So I I think the one place where the doc went off track is having. Media personalities give their theories of his gambling when they don't have any upfront, close, and personal information. I think their opinion, they're entitled to their opinion. If you're sitting in a bar over a few beers and you want to say, hey, do you think Jordan was gambling? You know, do you think he got mm-hmm. thrown out for gambling? Stern came on. I don't know if he's, I've seen the first eight episodes, so I don't know each one individually, but Stern came on and completely debunked the notion that that, that there was any conspiracy that he was ushered out of the NBA. Because of gambling, it simply never happened. Stern is way too much of a capitalist to take his cash cow and suspend him for you know for gambling, which is not illegal. He didn't he didn't bet on games. He bet on blackjack or golf. Right. There's nothing illegal. There's nothing. This isn't Alex
1: Karras you know you know being banned by Pete Rizzo. So it, it never happened. You talk about Michael being who he is, and who he is 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 a I don't know what the word is, but he's harsh. And I say that in a positive way, mostly that he's just like, hey, this is who I am. A couple of things come across in the doc. I think we're gonna see footage this week or or talk this week about his how hard he was on teammates in practice and whoever he punched in practice and something with Steve Kerr or maybe Will Purdue or whatever it's coming. But he was that and I also thought it interesting that as close as he seemed with Scottie Pippen, the whole contract thing, you know, you see players pipe up all the time in support of their teammates. He just, he kind of said, well, you know, Scottie shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have put off surgery or whatever it was in, in protest of his contract. I wonder if you want yeah, to address that.
2: Yeah, I'll talk about it all. So um, I wouldn't say Michael's harsh. That's, that's not, the adjective. I say he's intense. And yeah. you have to again I think I said this earlier. He came back from baseball when baseball was about to go on strike. He's 31 years old and he's going to play again. Now he's not playing because he needs the salary. But he's not playing. He he definitely missed basketball, but he could have stayed in baseball. He would have stayed in baseball if there weren't a strike. And he only wants one thing when he comes back. He wants more rings. You know, he's not playing, you know, to promote you know, collectibles. He's not playing to, to, you know, to sell more Gatorade. He's playing because he wants to win. It's the only thing he wants, and he's playing with a team that's good, not great, um, and he knows his he knows his window is short, and so he's extremely focused and intense on his goal, and. It's almost like, if I could give you the best analogy, it's almost like he has three championship trophies on the table and he knows they're his. He's not going to let anyone steal it off the table because they're distracted or they're trying to be a comedian or they think they've gone big time because they're the 13th guy on the team that played three minutes a game and you're not coming back in shape. He was keenly aware that he was going to control as many of the variables as he could. And that's what any smart person would do. That's what any successful person would do. You don't leave. That's what any great lawyer would do. You don't leave things to chance. And was he intense? Absolutely. He was so focused on winning. He drove himself so hard and he pushed that emotion on a lot of other players who on their own would not have cared about winning as much as he did. That's why the doc is so fascinating Mm -hmm. because they bring out, that aspect of his human nature—that, that, yes, he could be difficult, demanding. Um, I think I was demanding of you. A lot of people have told me, you know, you're so tough, yeah. because I have very high standards for myself, and I transmit those standards to other people that I'm that I'm around. Maybe it's unfair. That's just who I am. That's clearly who he was, and he—it was compounded by the the very strong awareness that he's in a very short window. And when the when the window closed, it was over. He couldn't come back at 51 and say, I want to try this. He can't come back tomorrow and try to win a championship. It's is not going to happen. And so the, the, he, was, he was, Andrew, what most athletes need to be, keenly aware of his mortality as an athlete. Even as the greatest mm-hmm. player in the history of the game, he knew it wasn't going to last forever, and he wanted it. He wanted to take as many drinks as he could, you know, while, while while he could. And yes, he was extremely demanding. And Phil, by contrast, who was a great coach, it was a very low-key guy. And so that's what you want. You want your best player to drive your other player. I'll tell you a great story. If I give you an analogy outside of Michael Jordan, James Worthy told me this story. Michael had a teammate on the ball's named Orlando Woolridge from Notre Dame. Orlando was chiseled like a Greek Adonis, six nine. He could jump through the hoop. He wasn't a great competitor. He was what most people call a stat guy. If he had twenty and ten, and they lost by fifty, he was happy. If they won by fifty and he had five and five, he'd be unhappy. He had a drug problem, and he got went to rehab, and he got traded to the Lakers in the height of Showtime: Magic, Kareem, Worthy, Cooper, Byron Scott, et cetera. Kurt Rambis. He. She was not a pr- player who practiced hard. So he comes to practice the first few days under Riley, and they're running fast break drills, and he is loping up and down the court, taking his taking his time. Magic is watching this. Here's the outside guy coming into the family, not practicing hard, and Magic was doing a slow burn. So one play, Magic throws him the hardest blind pass he can and splits open while we're just bleeding like crazy. They take him in the locker room, gets about eight stitches. And they bring him back out. He's got bandages on, he's on the side and magic turns to him, not Riley and says, Hey, Oh, by the way, in case no one told you, we run the fast break here in LA. That's all he had to say. Now, Jerry West is the GM president. He didn't have to say it. Pat Riley, yeah. the coach, he didn't have to say it. When you have your best player tuned into your philosophy, which Phil did with Michael, Michael did that with every coach. He did that with Dean. He did that with Kevin Lockley as a rookie. He did that with Phil. did that with his baseball coach, with Tito Frank Cody in Birmingham. Michael is a respectful person. And he was laying down the law so Phil didn't have to lay down the law. And he was doing it both for the team and for himself because he, he
1: it wasn't worth playing if he couldn't win. And I, I agree with that. I think that what this documentary shows is is Michael, in all the footage, and I think the best part, the best part, is we're seeing a side of Michael no one ever saw. When exactly. he sits in that chair, yeah. he's got his, whatever that is, his scotch or bourbon on the side of him. No, no, it's and, it's, Jordan, it's his, his own tequila company. Oh, it's Cinco his own tequila. <laughs> you know, you know, he's tequila great. Company and he's great. He's, and, and so when he looks at the iPad, he's so honest, he's so raw. And yeah. for whatever reason, we don't see a lot of Michael Jordan publicly over these past years. Uh, you know, I know we see him at the Hornets games, but, uh, it's impressive. And I think what we're seeing is, is a person that had no tolerance for BS, you know, And I think we're going to see more of that as the doc goes on. And my question to you is, I should have asked it earlier, how did this happen? And you mentioned Mike, Mike Tolan actually was a classmate of mine at Stanford. How did this happen? How did they get access to this last dance like this? Well,
2: when when Krause infamously announced that if Phil went 82 and everyone was going to come back and everyone knew the team was going to break up, NBA Entertainment films all the stuff anyway. They film on the the game stuff. And they asked him, could they film, this is back in 97, could they film a behind the scenes as long as he had permission before they released it? And he said, yes. And so that was 23 years ago. He's never given permission to release it. Stern's asked me hundreds of times over the last 20 years, you know, what are we going to make into a movie? You know, David's dead. This was his vision and you know very recently michael agreed i wasn't involved in the approval process he agreed you know that it was time to release the footage and he is he's an extremely genuine person you know he's putting on no airs he's not soft pedaling it you know i didn't ask you a question about pippin the pippin relationship is really really fascinating because if you listen to pippin's interviews over the last two or three years not not in the documentary just ESPN, different places, he yeah. oftentimes has said that Michael was not the greatest player ever. Now, Michael said Pippen was his greatest teammate ever, but Pippen would not acknowledge that Michael was the greatest player ever because there's an underlying their relationship. There's a, there's a certain level of jealousy that Pippen had toward Michael, which he openly expressed in the doc. I mean, think about this. Pippen comes out of central Arkansas in 1987 yeah. as the fifth pick in the draft. Very few people ever heard of Scottie Pippen, much less Central Arkansas. He didn't go to Kentucky. He didn't go to Duke. Didn't go to Carolina. Didn't go to Kansas. Didn't go to UCLA, Arizona, Oregon, Syracuse. I or can name a basketball schools. Georgetown. Um, and his dream was to be the best player on the team. Now, you know James Worthy well. We worked together with James for years. Right. James was the best player in the state of North Carolina, probably from the seventh or eighth grade through his junior year at Carolina when he won the national championship. He was the man. Everyone knew he was the man and he was an extremely confident man. And he got drafted number one by the Lakers in 1982. The only player in the history of the NBA, Andrew to be drafted number one by a team that had just won the title. And I guarantee you the entire time he was on the Lakers, he never once said to himself, gosh, I'd really like to be the best player on this team when he had Magic and Kareem on the team. He didn't care. He just wanted to win. Now, in the playoffs, he became Superman. He elevated his game to a different level. Big game, James. He was amazing. But his ego, he was so confident in himself that he wasn't worried where he was ranked. If he were in the NBA today as one of the top 10 players in the league, but not the best player on his team, he'd probably ask for a trade you know, a player today's player wouldn't accept being the third best player on the team when you're that good, okay. but he, he just loved playing with those guys and he was content just to put rings on. Um, so Scotty, you know, Scotty comes from a different background. Now, as far as the contract concerned, you know, Donald signed Michael to a terrible contract coming out of Carolina and he had to live with it after his fourth year I renegotiated the contract. I didn't want to renegotiate the contract. I got three years to go, two of which weren't even guaranteed, because I knew that he'd never get what he's worth unless he played it out. But it was so below the market, and it was driving him crazy, that he demanded that we renegotiate the contract. So we got him a five-year extension for roughly a little bit over $5 million a year. At a time when the second highest paid player in the league was making $3 million a year, which was Ewing, and the third highest-paid player was Jabbar making $2 million a year. And there probably weren't many players making $1 million a year. And so it was huge. But I told him I didn't want to do it because it would never hold up. And so we signed. We had the last three years of the old deal. We couldn't change it under the cap. Added five years of the new deal. And he wasn't paid what he was worth until 1996 when he became a free agent. Pippen signed a contract by his admission on the dock that he wanted to take care of the people in his family. He had two people in his family that were disabled in wheelchairs and he didn't want to risk that he would get hurt, couldn't support them. So he did a long-term contract and he got exactly what he wanted security. And there's a price to pay for security is that as the market changes around you, you know, you can't, you can't change your deal. Nobody felt that worse than magic. Johnson is one of the greatest players in the history of the game who signed a 25-year deal for a million dollars a year, and a year later, a rookie named Patrick Ewing signed a 10-year deal for 3.2 million. How do you think Magic felt? He never changed that contract ever. He that was the only that was his last contract. He had a five-year contract as a rookie and a 25-year contract as a veteran. The most he ever made playing is two and a half million dollars a year. That's abominable for a person of Magic's talent, charisma draw at the gate, and this is freaking Magic Johnson. Scotty Pippen's yeah. not in the same league as, as Magic Johnson as a player. Very good player. he's not. He ain't Magic Johnson. And so, you know, Michael was upset, not because he didn't want Scotty to make more money, but because he was using his dissatisfaction with the contract to interfere on the court. That's inappropriate. And it is inappropriate.
1: Yeah. You know, Speaking of the Bulls, as we wrap up, David, I just thought, and by the way, one of my uh, w- I-can't-believe-I'm-here moments when I pinched myself at age 26 or 27, you took me out to dinner after a Bulls game. It was you, me, and Jerry Reinsdorf. That was it. And I'm thinking wow. to myself, what am I doing here at a Chicago steakhouse? Wow. And I remember you and Reinsdorf, uh, he was quite a bit older, but you just had a nice relationship. Obviously, because you had Michael Jordan, but I think you guys got along well, which sort of brings me to the question of this whole thing. I have my sons are watching, I have people ask me, w- what was going on here? Like, how does the GM say this is it for this group? And and if that was happening right. today, I might like, God, it'd be a social media every hour would be these polls and these uh, ESPN shows about it. It was like, People are looking back and saying, how did that happen? So you have obviously unique insights into what was going on. How does Jerry Krause, the GM, decide not to go forward with this team? And I think the bigger question you would have extreme insight on is how does Jerry Reinsdorf allow it?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Really great question. And I've discussed this with Jerry recently, you know, just sort of after watching the doc rehash it again. So you have to understand, Krause is not a bad person, but he is an extremely insecure person, extremely, um, between his looks, his height, his manners. I mean, he's rough. guy is really rough around the edges. And he comes to the Bulls in 1985 after Jordan finishes his rookie year. Michael is drafted by Rod Thorne, who is one of the most popular, well-liked, respected executives, certainly my top 10 of all time. I love the guy. Love the guy. He's now a consultant for the Wizards. And and so Kraus, no one's going to say, wow, Krauss built a good team. He's got Michael Jordan. He's got the greatest player of all time. Most people think that your next door neighbor could win a championship with Michael Jordan. And they're wrong. It's not that easy. Mm-hmm. In fact, from 1980 to today, you know, Forty years, less than half the teams in the league have ever won a championship. Um, there's not a lot of parity in the NBA. Um, and and Krause's insecurity manifested itself in so many ways. You know, um, he was a friend of mine. Read a quote. You know, you know Dan Helley. We I did a show with yep. him, and he read a quote from David Halberstam in his book that Krause deserves more credit than that he probably got. And not as much credit as he thought he deserved. And I thought that was a great quote. I mean, the guy won six titles, okay? And in his generation, only Red Auerbach and Pat Riley and possibly Jerry West, you know, has many rings. He was in very select company. If he had just shut the hell up and let his body of work do the talking, he probably would have gotten a lot of kudos. But he would, out of his way, as he does in the doc, to say it's not the players. It's the organization. Now, of course, the organization has won zero championships since Jordan left, so it clearly was not the organization. It was clearly Michael Jordan, but he just couldn't keep his mouth shut. And he went out and hired Phil. When Phil was coaching in the Continental League, Phil was not a hot commodity in coaching circles. John Lucas was on his team, Andy, when he was coming out of drug rehab. And he's coaching the freaking Albany Patroons. Have you ever heard? You're a big fan of the Albany Patroons. And he hires Phil because he knows he's going to have way more control over an upstart than he would over a guy like Doug Collins, who Michael loved. Doug was a great coach. And as Phil's popularity grew, Phil got way more credit for the Bulls' wins than than Jerry did, than Jerry Krause did. And he was more popular, you know, he was more charming, more interesting. And it drove Krauss crazy. And I think that their relationship soured because Krause wasn't getting the re- – Phil would ask him not to come into the locker room. That was the player's domain. And Krauss felt he had the right to go in. Players didn't want Krauss in the locker room. They didn't want lo- no, – none of the players liked Krauss. And he didn't make it easy for them to like him. He just didn't. He graded on their personalities. And and so he thought after year five, Kraus thought Pippen had some issues with his back. He was having some problems with his back, and he was going to become a free agent. He had a bunch of other players on the team that would become free agents that were role players. And he felt that because of the championships that their value as free agents would be grossly in excess of their value to the Bulls. You might as well just break it up now. Now, that might be a good decision if you don't have a championship team. If you're a regular team and you think, "Hey, we've done as good as we can, time to rebuild," you know, I get it. Um, but you don't do that to a team that's won two in a row. You you play out the string, and and so not only was it a questionable decision, you know, because they'd won the championship, but even if you're going to make the decision, you would never announce it. In advance, if you want to win the sixth title, and then say, "Hey, we're not going to bring the group back because Pippen's back is bad, Dennis has gone off the deep end, and, you know, whatever," we're we'll going to try a new coat, we're we'll going to start again, and we can't have Phil in a rebuilding mode. Maybe, maybe that makes sense. It makes zero sense in America to tell a person that if you get a hundred on a test, an A plus, that you're not going to pass. <laughs> it, it defies logic. It just does. But that's Krause's personality. He wanted to show people that he was in charge. And he did. And he's being vilified for it, you know, for making that decision. Because a lot of people think that if they just kept the band together, they could have won a few more titles. Now, why did Jerry Reinsdorf, who I love, I love a guy, why did he condone it? I think that basketball is not... Roger's first love. He loves baseball. He owns the White Sox. Mm-hmm. That's his passion. Um, I think he enjoys the, the Bulls by his son, Michael, who's a great guy. He runs the Bulls. And I think that he gave Krauss a reasonably wide level of authority. And Krauss obviously convinced him that it wouldn't make sense in, from business to bring back Pepin and all these guys. They were going to have to rebuild. I think that was a little bit of a smokescreen. I think what Krauss wanted. He wanted to hire Tim Floyd, who was another upstart coach, you know, wasn't a big name, college coach's fishing buddy, that he could control and tell him what to do and who to play. Like, that's what he wanted. And he sacrificed a chance for a seventh or an eighth championship, I think, for his ego. And, you know, I don't want to berate the guy because he died, but um, really, really poor decision. And Jerry Reinsdorf, To his credit, gave Krauss a lot of authority. He should have supervened, in my opinion, and said, "Jerry, that's he." He knows that announcing it was a disaster. He didn't condone announcing it. But let me tell you a funny story. Okay, this is Krauss. This is Krauss in a nutshell. So we renegotiate Michael's deal in 1988, signed for the highest deal in the history of the NBA, and go to the press conference. We're sitting in Reinsdorf's office, deciding how we want to address the contract to the media. Krauss says, let's just say it's an eight year contract and the terms are undisclosed. I look at Reinsdorf as a jury. Either you say the terms are undisclosed, or you say we signed to an eight-year contract for the highest contract in the history of the NBA. But you can't announce you've tied up the best player in the league, you know, without announcing the money. So we pick your poison, either say no terms mm-hmm. or all terms. And Kraus starts arguing as he always does. And Reisdorf shuts him up and says, Jerry, shut up. David's right. So we go into the press conference. And Reisdorf lets Kraus run the press conference. So Krauss stands up. You know, the guy's about 5'5". Five, five. He has his head down like he's at a funeral. And in a really soft voice, he says, um, uh, we'd like to announce uh, that one of our very good players, um, Michael Jordan, <laughs> we've signed to an extension Terms are undisclosed. Are there any questions? Now, this is the greatest player <laughs> in the history of the game, the biggest player on the team, and he acts like he's at a funeral like that. He's, he's mad that they've signed him or something. So the first reporter raises his hand and says, Jerry, why'd you decide to sign Michael for eight years? And Krause says, I didn't say that we signed Michael for eight years. He goes, I know, but the press release you gave us before we came in here says you signed him for eight years. I look at Ryan's like, come on. Like, come on are you serious and he just like gives the look like Michael Gabriel after he hit six threes against Portland like sorry yeah that's Krause you know and the guy just had a terrible touch with people that doesn't mean he was a terrible executive it just he was he happened to be a very insecure guy um, and you know <laughs> excuse me
1: bless you it's almost interesting I'm that you, I'm sneezing on the truth I'm sneezing on the truth <laughs> no worry. It's always interesting if you you think about today and whether there could even be a GM as unpolished as there was back. then. I remember being around you and Michael one day, and you guys are. I think we're, you brought lunch in the office, and you're talking this crumbs, this crumbs, that. i crumb, yeah. like, and Michael left, and I'm like, David, you guys kept talking about crumbs. What's crumbs? And you said, <laughs> Oh, that's good. That's his general manager. I got. I got. Like, I got. One more question. Yeah.
2: I want to say, I want to come back to the, just before we finish, I'll come back to Pippin for a minute. You know, yeah. one as I said, one of the things I thought was not, was overdone. There were too many reporters in the doc. Now, I think Wilbon belonged there. He's good friends with Michael. Mark Vansel was really close with Michael, wrote five books with him, and Ahmad is one of his best friends. <laughs> but when when Rick Thielander, who's a very, very talented writer, said that the problem that Pippin had was he was the 112th Highest-paid player. First of all, back then, they didn't. He wouldn't. They didn't keep the analytics. Nobody would know he was the 112th highest-paid player. And I guarantee you, mm-hmm. Pippin's agent Jimmy Sexton didn't know he was the 100. And I guarantee you, Pippin did give a, a damn that he was the 112. What Pippen, what rankled Pippin, is that Krauss wanted to have one player that he found. That would give him the credit when they won. And he could say, okay, yes, I inherited Jordan, but I found X. So he found mm. Pippen, but very early on, you know, Pippen and he parted ways because, because of what I'm about to tell you. So he found, he decided to sign the best player in Europe, Tony Kukac. It wasn't right. a big secret that Kukac was really talented any more than it was a secret two years ago when Dallas drafted Luka Doncic, you know, that he was an amazingly talented player. Amazing. Um, or that many years ago, and there's a guy you know, that Arvidas Sabonis, who might have been the greatest big man in the history of basketball, one of them, you know, when he played for, you know, played for Portland. Um, and so he brought he brought Kukac over and paid Kukac way more than Pepin. That's what irked Pepin. And Pepin had every mm-hmm. right to be irked because it was really foolish, you know, to upset the chemistry of the team when you have your second best player and you pay Kukac almost twice what you're paying Pippen, it just wasn't, it just wasn't a smart move. And Kukac is a great guy. He's really good friends with Michael, even to this day. Wasn't his fault, but it Pippen wasn't, I mean, Kukac wasn't that kind of an impact player on the bulls that he deserved to be paid half of what Pippen was making. And so, but that's, that is Krause in a nutshell. he, is trying to impose his reality that it's his decision making and his architecture that's responsible for the success of the Bulls when it it wasn't. It was it was one guy. I mean, person probably get the most credit for the success of the Bulls is Rod Thorne for drafting Michael Jordan. Uh, it probably would have been if he didn't draft him at three. He probably would have been vilified, but it fell into his lap and he drafted him and had a great relationship with him to this day. Um, so you know, it takes you but the crowd story. So so for, for the so here's my crowd story with Kukash. I take <laughs> my wife Rhonda on vacation to Italy. We're supposed to go straight to Milan, but at the last minute, I don't know if you remember these guys. I had two guys working for me um, named Kenny Grant and Bill Sweek, who had played with Jabbar at UCLA, and they're running our European basketball operation. So they say, David, if you're coming to Italy. Why don't you take a day off and come to the European Final Four in Lee, Italy? Well, we had a player named Rod Griffin in 1978. He was the ACC Player of the Year. Got cut in training camp by Denver and played his whole career in League. So I got a limo for my wife. She goes up to Milan. They pick me up in Bologna. We go to Forley. Um Now, you've traveled a lot. I mean, you ran Barcelona in the World League. Mm-hmm. So you traveled a lot internationally. And experienced international traveler, gets on the plane at five or six o'clock at night, maybe has a light bite to eat and goes to sleep because you know that you're going to get up there at eight in the morning and you're going to have to go to work. So I mm-hmm. didn't have anything to eat, had a glass of wine, a motion sickness pill, put on a <laughs> blindfold and went to sleep. I got to Italy, spent the day with my guys, and that night we went to the Italian Final Four to see who Tony Kukac, paying for Benetton, run by my guy you know as well, named Beppe DiStefano, who got me the mm-hmm. best ticket in the arena, first row, center Court. So the game's about to start, and who walks in but Jerry Krauss? Now, I wasn't on the plane with him, but I would bet a lot of money that Krauss ate every meal, watched two movies, got up, had, had the ice cream in the middle of the night, breakfast in the morning, I didn't skip a meal, and slept zero. So he's walking in with his head down. He's (laughs) exhausted and he's slouching in and to get to his seat up in the, you know, he likes to sit up high because he thinks it gives him a better view of the, and no one can watch him take notes because he thinks he has a better insight into the players than anyone. So, so I'm watching the game and to get to his seat, Krause has to literally walk right by me. So I'm sitting there as he gets about 10 feet away, his head's still down. He hasn't looked up. And I scream really loud, Jerry! And he like he st- he looks up, he's startled, he's, he's trying to focus his eyes, his jowls are shaking. And you think he's having a nightmare. Like, what the freak is Falk doing? I'm in Italy. It's like, <laughs> this is a bad dream. I said, what are you, you're not here to see Kukac again, are you? And he said, no, no, I'm just scouting. So it goes up to his seat. Halftime, I- I'm getting a little tired. I've been up for like, you know, 30 hours. And so I go to uh, the snack bar to get a Coke, and I bump into a former named Dave Corzine, who was a center. He was a great mm-hmm. guy. But before I go, I turn up to look at Krauss, and he is dead asleep. His arms are slated aside. His mouth is open. He's snoring, and his notebook is with his his you know CIA <laughs> notes that no one else can see. It's freaking wide open. I'll just crack it up. So I go to – get my Coke. And I see Corzine. I said, Dave, you got to come. On. I got a special guest in the stands. You got to watch it. So <laughs> Corzine comes back, crowds up there snoring his, <laughs> you know, and we're laughing our ass off. So the game ends and I walked in, Beppy, had me come in the locker room. I met Kukac, really nice young man. I told him who I was. And my guys take me to stay overnight in this little town called Emol about 20 minutes away. And I'm so wired now from the Coke, I can't sleep. We decide to have a drink in the bar. So there's five small, you know how they are in Italy, like these little round, round yeah. tables, tabletop bar. And I get a drink from my guys and I look to my left and who do I see? Tony Cronach, oh, no. his, his agent Mark Crow, and Krauss, nose to nose. Krauss is pounding him, you know, to come to Chicago. So I walk up, I get it, get, I walk up behind Krauss and I slap him on the back as hard as I can, really hard. And like, it's like this star like, turns around. And I said, oh my God, N- nightmare number two. The freak is Falk doing in the bar. And I said, God, what are you doing, Jerry? And he goes, ah, oh, just having a little social chat. I said, well, let me buy you a drink. He said, no, 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 no. It's just, we're just talking socially. I said, well, let me buy you a social drink. like, you paid so much money to our players. and I want to thank you. And he's going crazy. So I wake at Kuka, I said, I said, look, when you're done getting briefed over here by Jerry Krause, Slide on over to my table. Let me let me debrief you. <laughs> so I called, I called Jerry Reisner. When I got home, I said, Jerry, if you want to sign this guy, keep Krauss at home. He's driving the kid crazy. You know, you have drafted him. I mean, is he going to come. Or he's not going to come. Krauss isn't going to persuade him to come. And it just it's just vintage Jerry. People skills were not his forte. And and uh, now I hear a comment on his basketball acumen. Um, but you know, he was, he was difficult and Reinsdorf knew he was difficult. And I think the reason Reinsdorf had him, Andy was because he was difficult. He was like his hold a minute he was like his German shepherd. And when you got done dealing with Krauss, you were so pissed off and frustrated that dealing with Jerry, you know, it was like, you know, you, you were marinated. You were, ready, you were ready to make the deal. I wouldn't deal with Krauss. I wouldn't do contracts with Krauss. I thought it was a mark of disrespect to me. I wanted I wanted to do a jury. And I did, especially for Michael.
1: So we've got a few episodes left and I know we're trying to fast forward, but if you look back on this this episode this period, this last dance, you know, I think we're going to what would you want viewers to take away from this? And maybe you've already covered it with how intense and how real Michael was, but as we come to the end of this documentary, which is obviously getting bafo ratings, partly because of the pandemic, but I just think people are just mesmerized by this guy uh, what Absolutely. do you What would you want the takeaway to be A couple of things number one
2: it 's a rare look behind the scenes. You really get to see a player unvarnished like this who's not acting yeah. and is not worried you know about being himself. And it gives you an amazing insight into what it takes to reach that level of performance in sports. And I think that, you know, I've been telling owners this for 30 years. I think if you took the greatest players, let's say in my career, not, not that I've represented that I've been around that I've watched, take Jordan, you take magic bird, Patrick, you and Olajuwon, you know, um, I, I could go on and on. Every one of those players, Kevin McHale, uh, Joe Dumars, those guys in their DNA, they have a gene. I call it the Terminator gene. They don't want to just win; they want to destroy you. And it doesn't matter how much money you pay them. You could pay them a dollar. You could pay them a trillion. They're gonna. They want to destroy you. That's how they're chemically and genetically programmed the vast majority of players, when you get down from superstars to stars, they don't have that gene. Like mm-hmm. you could pay them a certain amount of money and they're going to become complacent. They made the money they have got the security. They don't work as hard. Um, and, and Michael had the biggest dose of the Terminator gene of any player I've ever met. Um, you know, I think Jerry West was like that in his day, Oscar Robertson, you know, Elgin Baylor. I mean, those guys were amazing competitors. And there's only a handful of them at, at the highest level of the game. You know, why, like, why is Tom Brady playing at age 43? Is it for money? No. Pride, legacy, ego, he's driven. He wants to, yeah. he probably a little bit like Krauss now wants to prove that he can win outside of Belichick, which would be interesting. Um, I'm a big Brady fan. He's a great guy. And it's going to be interesting to see at 43, if he can, you know, win outside of, of Belichick. So I think you get a chance to see what does it take as a fan. It doesn't just take jumping ability and style to be a great player. It's not enough. It takes the mental part. And to bear that out, you know, I represented Dominique Wilkins, who I really liked for five years, one of the most physically talented players ever to play basketball, nicknamed the human highlight film. And as he got older, I represented him starting in his eighth year. So let's say he was close to 30. And I used to say to me, you've got to broaden your game. When you can't jump, you're not going to be able to play basketball at this level. And he got mad and said, well, what about Michael? I said, what about Michael? When Michael can't jump, He'll be Larry Bird. Michael was probably the most fundamentally sound player in the NBA, which was hard to see because of his immense physical talent. But at Carolina, he, he learned the fundamentals, both offensively and defensively. And I think that the, the viewer should come away of understanding to get to that pantheon level, that, that, that very rare error to quote Michael's book, it that takes way more than hard practice and lifting weights and practicing jump shots. It takes, it takes a special mental approach to the game. It takes what you would call being harsh. It takes a certain level of incredible focus and intensity to reach that level. And, and, um, and it can be destroyed by having someone in your organization whose ego is, gets in the way of their judgment and breaks up the team because they don't feel they're getting enough credit. I mean, you see sort of both sides of the coin and in between, you see all the personalities. You see the Rodman who can go off the deep end, even though he's incredibly talented from time, to time, or Pippen who could sulk and not want to go in the game because, because Phil doesn't call his play on the last play or he doesn't want to play in Utah when he has a headache while Jordan has, you know, freaking food poisoning and scores 38 points. You know, it takes a lot of adjustments, like a marriage, to make the championship. It's not just having good players. The players have to get along. And it's not easy to get along when you're playing for nine months in close quarters and you have issues with your family and people wonder why you get more shots or more time, more attention, more endorsements, more money. It's very, there's so many pressures. And Jordan, because he's so bright, has the ability to be the air traffic controllers to regulate all these pressures. Sometimes to take the pressure off, and sometimes to put the pressure on on his teammates because he needs them, he needs them to perform.
1: Do you see anyone like that in modern basketball? I mean, I know that the the tribalists are out there with the LeBron Jordan comparisons and who's who's in which always upsets me. I'm like, why do we have to go there? Why do we have to do any of that? But I mean, you mentioned Brady and football. Do you see that drive, that terminator gene you talked about in today's athletes and some of the superstars? There's there's only one athlete. I would say two. I think,
2: first of all, I think LeBron is a a great player. One of the greatest players of all time. I think it's, I think it's comparing apples and oranges with the way more like magic as a player Than he is like Jordan Kobe. I think Kobe is the closest player in the last, you know, since Michael stopped to Michael because he modeled himself to Michael in every way, in his style. Clearly. Clearly. Yeah. Um, I think Kobe is the closest in basketball to Michael, but the closest athlete to Michael is easy. It's Tiger Woods, you know, Tiger, Tiger's Michael on the golf course. You know, and if you want to read a great book, Andrew, I'll give a little plug to my friend in your hometown in Philly. Uh, Michael Bamberger, who I played with mm-hmm. a few times uh, at Marion, with my great friend Jay Haas, not the golfer, but he's a financial guy. Um, uh, Michael wrote an amazing book; it just came out called "The Second Life of Tiger Woods." And he talks about how a typical golfer, with his Palmer Nicholas, like if as long as they win, they don't care if they win by one. And these are the all-time greats. Tiger wants to win by twenty. He wants to like bury you. So if he ever plays you again, you're going to remember. Like that, he buried you as going to interfere in your ability to compete with him. I think Tiger is the closest thing, was the closest thing to Michael, um, ever, you know, that I saw in sports. I actually played golf with Tiger once about a year ago here in Washington. Um, but he wasn't, he was quiet. He, like, Michael, you play with Michael and he's going to talk smack <laughs> all day long. Gonna talk trash. You can't make that change. You're gonna go in the water. You're so pissed off to show, you're not that you do go in the water and you get distracted. <laughs> and so he's. I got to tell you one last great story. I got to tell you this for your podcast. So this is a yeah. story about my younger brother, my younger brother Mitch, who is like my polar opposite. And I invited him to a Bulls game. Uh, it's probably late '90s, mid, mid '90s. My brother is in a huge drinker. So after dinner, Michael invites us out to dinner at uh, this restaurant called Madison's on, right near the arena on the west side. And he invites Pippin, Rod Strickland, who's from, you know, played in Chicago in college, who happened to come, and Phil Knight, who was in town to watch the game. And about 10 guys around dinner, so a mod might have been there, and we're talking and having an appetizers. My brother's throwing down Jack Daniels like it's water. And get about ten of them. And Phil Knight, who's sort of a shy guy, is cracking on me in a nice way. And he's trying to be funny and making a few cracks. And my brother doesn't know who Phil Knight is. He's wearing sunglasses okay. at the table. He's got like very fair hair, you know, not, not a lot of it, not much more than mine. And after about ten minutes of this, my brother says, Excuse me to Phil. What's your name? And Phil says, Oh, my name is Phil. What's your name? And my brother said, my name is Mitch. He goes, well, what do you do, Mitch? And Mitch says, you know, you know I, I work, I work for a guy you probably know, John. And Phil says, John who? He goes, John Gotti. <laughs> so Phil's like a little, take it away. My brother says, you know, Phil, I've been sitting here for like the last 10 minutes quietly. It's obvious to me that you like to bust balls. I've been watching you bust this guy's balls for the last 10 minutes. And so if you don't mind for the next 10 minutes, I'd like to start busting your balls. (laughs) Michael started laughing and he's laughing so hard that he's literally crying at the table. This is the first time he ever met my brother. And Mitchell had no idea who Phil, I don't think he would have done it. It would have been disrespectful if you knew who Phil was but he had no idea who Phil was. You know, he had never met him. He, you know, my brothers love sports, but he doesn't follow the business side. <laughs> and, and Michael, after that, like he said to me, you surely have to be brothers from a different mother. I, I, in a million years, you could have had 20 Jack Daniels. I could never imagine you doing <laughs> something like that. <laughs> hey, and, like, he thought it was funny. It really, and it really was funny. The guys at the table were stunned. I mean, I think Tread Tucker was probably at the table and like four or five players. And it was, it was hilarious. So, um, that was, that was Michael's first introduction to my brother. That's, that's not <laughs> in the doc. We didn't put that. We didn't put that in the doc. We had a, that yeah. would have been like
1: X-rated last question. I'll let you go, David. The, what is Michael's life now? Like, I mean, we see him as I, as I keep saying in this unvarnished look and how, uh, how, Honest and open he is in these comments. But what is his life like these days? Well, he's got. A, first of all, he's got an amazing wife. He's uh, got
2: two beautiful mm-hmm. twin daughters who are about five and a half, uh, who are adorable. Um, he owns his team. Uh, he wants the team to do better. Uh, he hired Mitch Kupchak. Hopefully, Mitch will improve. Mitch is a, a pros pro. Hopefully, improve the team. He plays a lot of golf. He has his own golf course called Grove 23 right near his house uh, that Rory McIlroy belongs to and Dustin Johnson and uh, a, a ton of, a ton of pros. Uh, I, I'm a member. Uh, it's a great, it's really at Wiki Fowler. It's a great place. Uh, he has a boat. He does, does some boating and fishing. You know, he's, he's just, he's really enjoying his life. He's, he's living the American dream. He's made a lot of money. He's achieved a high level of success. Uh, and, you know, he's growing his company. Brand Jordan is a $3 billion company. It's going to probably be a five to $6 billion company over the next 10 years. Um, and he's, uh, he's enjoying what he's earned rightfully so.
1: Very, He's very, very happy. And your relationship is now what, like 36 years? Is that it?
2: Yeah, 16, 36 years. He's he's a great friend. You know, I had a step down from being his agent when he became an owner of the Wizards, uh, which was sort mm-hmm. of, you know, b- bittersweet for me. I mean, there's times I miss the action, if you will. There's times I love the fact that I don't have to make ask him to make appearances or, you know, go places. When he asks for my advice about business, he knows I'm there 24-7. I don't call him uh, and say, hey, you should be doing this. You should be doing this. He's 57. And he's experienced. He's bright, um, and you know, when he needs my advice, he knows I'll be there from you know lifetime. He's got a lifetime contract with me, and and he knows that there probably aren't enough words in the English language for me to thank him for making my career. I mean, he's he's a foundational piece of my career, along with Patrick, John Thompson, you know, Elton Brand, Juan—really special people that have stood by me for. Decades and enabled me to live my dream
1: That's a nice segue for me to wrap up David because you've been a foundational piece of my career and uh, people Laud me for some success in sports and business and media and academia, but You're a big part of that. Uh, I just want to well, thank I'm prou- you. And I'm,
2: and I'm proud and I'm very proud of that I'm very happy. I'm in touch that you would feel that way I'm, I'm, I'm happy for your success and your happiness. And I would say you've earned it the hard way you work for it. And so I'm very, very proud of you. I'm glad that all these years down the road to different travels and iterations that we could still maintain a friendship. And I hope we do a lot more of these. You're gonna, I'm going to have you
1: on my podcast if we can ever get it off the damn ground. Yeah, absolutely. I heard someone say once be thankful to the people in your life that believed in you more than you believed in yourself. I was a 25 year old kid out of law school and you took me in. So I just want to say that you, your name resonated when I heard that line. So thanks, David. Well, I'll tell you, you, your pedigree coming out of Stanford and,
2: uh, and Georgetown law school (laughs) was a hell of a lot better than my pedigree. So it wasn't, it wasn't a hard hire. uh, It was a lot, it was a lot of fun being together because Donald was so damn cheap and we all had a, share rooms on the road we all got to know each other a lot better <laughs> than we probably would have got to know you know in today's day when we're all flying privately and staying in, uh, in in our
1: own room so it was a lot of fun i miss it and um it's great great to be on your show that was great great times well thanks so much david we went two hours i'm sure we could go another two but all respectful of your time and thanks for everything with this i really appreciate it I'll talk to you soon I really enjoy it. When you, when you get it all edited and stuff, give me a like. I want to hear it. You, you got it. Really hope you enjoyed these special episodes with the one and only David Falk, the best known agent in the basketball business for some 30 years now. Uh, yeah. Got to look inside Michael Jordan. Hopefully between the last dance documentary and David Falk, you now know Michael Jordan as well as anyone does. We're sponsored, as always, by Bet Online. People think there's nothing to bet on. There's no NBA, there's no NHL, Major League Baseball is not there yet. But there are, you'd be wrong. There are things to bet on. BetOnline still has hundreds of events, games, props, from online casino to poker to blackjack. They're bringing Vegas to you, and you miss the NFL, no problem. You can bet on live Daily Madden simulations. And if you're in there in entertainment betting, of course, you got American Idol, you got stock prices, even Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest, all open 24 hours, all online. So visit the website or use your mobile device. Join today. Bet online. Take advantage of the best bonuses in the business. Free account. Use the promo code PODCAST1 for your sign-up bonus. Bet online. Your online sportsbook experts. Hope you enjoyed that two-part series with David Falk, and that'll do it for this week's edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. We'll get back to general business of sports next week after these two interviews with David Falk. Appreciate those of you following me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt. Apple Podcast rankings, and comments are always appreciated. Credit to my son, Sam Brandt, for the interstitial music, and of course, my producer extraordinaire, Brian Neal. And we'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.